Hello, everyone, and I want to thank you so much for your patience in waiting for part three of this series to drop. I usually don't like to take too long, but January was getting away from me, and I needed to get the Patreon episode done for the month for those who support us over there. I have a few really important announcements, so bear with me for a few minutes at the beginning of this episode. Moving forward, we are going to be able to quickly dive right into our stories each week after the Patreon shoutouts, but I have a few things that I need to tell you first. I'm going to start off by saying that there are going to be some changes in the coming weeks with the podcast, starting with that you're not going to have to hear the Blueberry intro anymore at the beginning, and you're not going to hear that we are brought to you by Orbital Jigsaw anymore at the end. California Dreaming is going back to being 100% independent. What does this mean will change for you as a listener? Just those two things. No more Blueberry and no more Orbital Jigsaw at the beginning and at the end of every show that we've been doing for the last three and a half years. What does it mean for me? Well, a few things. The benefits of being with Orbital Jigsaw meant that I wasn't paying the cost of hosting the show with Blueberry. I wasn't paying for the website. And if you were buying California Dreaming merchandise from TeePublic, I wasn't making that money. It was absorbed by the network. So it was a fair trade-off. Obviously, there were no ads ever sold, We entertained the idea a couple of times. I once did one of those wondery mass advertisements for one of their new shows that every podcast you subscribe to dropped into your feeds all at once. That clearly infuriates every single one of you. I'm not going to go the way of another network right now. I'm going to go back to keeping it a one-woman show and just keep putting it down by myself. So for now, it's going to stay ad-free. I am going to have the added cost of hosting, and the longer your show is, like California Dreaming is almost always more than an hour long, then the more you pay each month for hosting, which is why, you know, sometimes shows start off with shorter episodes until they're able to start building somewhat of a good listener base, and then they start a Patreon, then maybe they'll be able to have enough downloads to attract advertisers Best Fiends, right? Madison Reed, you know, all that good stuff that you love to hear every single time you listen to a podcast. I might have to fire up the old website. I've got to figure out how to do merchandise. And there's some parts of this stuff, you know, I'm just going to have to break down and reach out to that guy. What's his face that? Oh, yeah, my husband. Uh, He said he would help me transition back. He was there in the beginning We were only two months in when we joined up with Orbital Jigsaw, so this is a big change for me. You're going to be seeing me do things differently. What's probably going to happen is I'm likely going to start making the episodes a little bit shorter, not less than an hour, but probably break them into one and two parts more often if they start being this long all the time. I don't know what is going on with me. I think I'm overthinking everything too much lately. I might be a little bit inconsistently all over the place until I figure things out. But the one thing that isn't going to stop is the show. I'll figure this all out somehow. As long as you're sticking with me, I'm sticking with it. Of course, one of the biggest ways many of you have helped keep the show going through the years has been your support on Patreon. I do have to say that 
while I have kept up on the monthly episodes, 2020 was actually probably my best year in terms of that on Patreon when it comes to consistency as well as the amount of content. The series that we finished off the year with took us four months to get through. It was more than 14 hours of content and all of it was just a dollar donation per month. I made that promise when my very first patron signed up at the $1 level that every single patron would have access to the monthly episode, whether they donated $1 or $100 a month. Everyone would get a listen. I know that so many of you love so many podcasts, and many of them offer bonus episodes at the $5 levels or the $10 levels, but what if you love 30 shows? Is it realistic that you're going to be able to donate 5 or $10 to 30 shows? Maybe for some of you out there, I don't know, I'm not really one of them, but most of us came to podcasts for entertainment because it was free to begin with, right? If you love 30 podcasts and you want to support 30 podcasts and you want to give $1 to 30 different shows, California Dreaming wanted to make sure that you get to listen to the monthly bonus always. I've been pressured to change that, but I won't ever. And that's a promise. If you get a dollar, you'll get one good long bonus episode per month. I also recently added the option of an annual subscription to Patreon. And if you choose that option, not only does it save you 15% for the year, it obligates me to making sure that I get the bonus episode out for you every single month. And there are several of you that I need to thank for recently taking advantage of that option. Kelly Grace, Sandra R., Casey Wells, Mary Virginia, Laura D., Elizabeth, Carolyn L, Christine S, Heather K, Melanie S, K Myers, Johnny A, and Jessica. And speaking of Patreon, like I said, we spent the months of August through December of 2020 doing one of our most in-depth looks into a case. We kept it a secret because it is a controversial case, so you need to be at least a $1 subscriber in order to know what that case is. But it took me a while to figure out how to move on from that because we were so invested in that story, right? But I did drop the very first Patreon bonus episode of 2021 finally. I took on the case covered in season one, episode one of the Netflix reboot of the classic television hit Unsolved Mysteries, The Death of Ray Rivera. He is the 32-year-old man who died after a fall from the top of the Belvedere Hotel in Baltimore, Maryland. If you recall, he and his wife were originally from California and had goals to return to the Los Angeles area, but he died before they were able to make that move. I really feel like I've given the story a different and original take than anything that you've heard on either Unsolved Mysteries or any podcast that has covered it either. It is going to be a two-parter because I think that there is much more to the story than what you may have heard thus far. It has been a while since I've said thank you to new Patreon supporters. Some of you who have joined the annual subscription, some of you were new, and some of you upgraded from monthly to annual. But please bear with me because I really need to thank these people. Jen P., Carrie, Joan, 
Tessa S, Tony M, Kara M, Maddie, Katie K, Rachel H, Lauren C, The Crimatorium Podcast, Anissa, Zach K, Stephanie R, Kathy R, Teresa, Alisa, it's not Alisa, it's I it's spelled A I L S A. It tricks you because it makes you think it makes you think it's Alisa, but it's not. Maybe it's Elsa T, Cameron S, Natalie G, Kendra, Nicole M, Linda B, Gina B, Sandy, and Ann B for joining Patreon recently, and Nia C, Jennifer, Jordan C, Susan F, Thomas M, Brandon C, Lauren S, Kiki W, Sarah S, and Mandy K for raising their pledges to the next tier. I will get to work on part two of Ray Rivera as soon as I am done recording and publishing this. All right, with all of that out of the way, let's get to this third and final part of the series, The Tale of Skeletons in the Closet. Where we left off in part two was Patricia Esparza having been arrested after flying into the United States by way of Boston's Logan Airport for what she said was business travels, but investigators also found out it was for a week of pleasure travels. But it's like, whatever, right? Because nobody is the boss of Dr. Patty because Dr. Patty does what Dr. Patty wants to do. Well, not so much anymore. The law was finally catching up with Patricia. She did not fight extradition to the Orange County Jail, and she found herself cooling her heels going into the 2012 holidays. It only took about less than two months for her to finally decide that she was going to talk. She did manage to earn herself bail. She even got to hold on to her passport. She was even going to be able to make her way back home for the holidays and spend Christmas in France with her daughter and her husband, her husband, who was going to continue to stand by her side, even though she hid all of these massive lies and secrets from him all these years. Murdery secrets. Murder that she would now be under indictment for. Murder that she was actually arrested for while she was in the middle of betraying their marriage in every other way. She just had a lot of confidence that her husband would never, ever leave her. And he didn't, as far as I know. He has stood by her. So Patricia would spend the next couple years coming up trying to work out a deal that she should have, could have worked back in 1995 when Gonzalo was murdered. Back in 1996, when authorities first arrested Gianni Van, only to find out that she was married to the prime suspect. When they emailed her, when they found out she divorced him, She could have worked it out then. I mean, so many times Patricia could have done the right thing. The right thing all along would have been from day one to report the rape. But if that wasn't the right thing for her, because as she put it, nothing would have gotten done, then how about not targeting Gonzalo to be killed? But that did happen. So then the right thing suddenly became coming forward and making sure that the people who committed a brutal killing were put behind bars. Because the right thing is for people capable of what they actually 
did do is to not be running around free. Then the right thing became to not marry the guy who brutally hacked a young father of two to death with the damn meat cleaver. To make sure that the people who did that, the people who were in on that, were held accountable. All of that is to say is that Patricia had many, many years to reach out to Orange County authorities to do the right thing, but she never did. Instead, not only did she look the other way, she did everything she could to make sure that they would not be able to prosecute the murderers. She stood in their way every step of the way, and it was very frustrating. By the time they had her under indictment for first-degree murder in 2012, Orange County authorities simply weren't going to let her off completely. There's no guarantee that they would have at any point, but her willingness to have been cooperative may have helped her in the past, especially when they didn't have the advanced DNA evidence or other witness information. Patricia insists that she was victimized repeatedly, consistently, incessantly, and had no choice but to maintain her silence, but her ability to freely live an entire decade of her life married to Gianni Van, without incident. She said they didn't live together. She continued her education. She went to college in Chicago. She worked on a political campaign in California. She studied in Africa. I mean, this is not a woman who was trapped or held down or held back. She is not being restrained or silenced into anything. She is ascending. She's learning. She's thriving. She's not withering in fear. I'm sorry. She's just not. Patricia sort of set the tone of the way she learned to live her life early in the story when she said she was sexually abused by her dad from the age of five to the age of 12. Instead of causing her to crumble mentally and emotionally, she excelled intellectually and academically. Now, that isn't to say that she didn't suffer mentally and emotionally. It's just she was really able to turn something extremely painful into something extremely positive. A full-ride scholarship to one of the most prestigious high school boarding schools in the country. A boarding school from which if you don't continue into an Ivy League college, then you're a failure. While Patricia did not go to an Ivy League, she ended up not being a failure academically speaking. But if we're going to venture into the standards of ethics, or dare we wander into the ever-so-tenuous biblical principles of the commandments, Patricia's not doing so great. Kinda some blunders there. A little bit of adultery, bearing false witness. Oh yeah, murder, right. Forgot about that, right, yeah. Patricia... What was it that Gonzalo said his famous last words to her after he allegedly raped her? He said, you've got some problems. I think it's very easy to say that in this particular story that truer words have not been spoken. Of all the people, the truest words to have come from the person that Patricia has tried to villainize the most throughout. Ironic in a way. She worked so hard to victimize herself and to villainize Gonzalo. And yet, for some of us listening, it had the opposite effect. I say for some of us because it does depend on who and what you believe. 
I realize I've been a little hard and biased against Patricia. I feel like she had 25 years to have her voice. She has had the advent of the internet and social media to continue to grow her platform and her support while Gonzalo's voice was silenced and those that were left to possibly speak for him were left with having to hope that those who could speak for him would not forget him. They had the obstacles of being immigrants. His children were sent to be raised in another country and had to put their faith that maybe somebody would get justice for the guy in the fading photos that they had that they were told was their papa. And because people are mean, it's even possible that those girls are living in a world where there's that constant reminder that the last earthly thing their dad is known for is being a rapist and he was hacked to death with a meat cleaver because of it. Patricia got to tell her story even though she never reported it. Even though Gonzalo was never arrested for it, he was never charged, he was never convicted, he was never able to defend himself. She continues to get to build an army of supporters, even with his blood on her hands. Even if that blood was for retribution for that alleged rape, she still gets to have that right. There's something about that that just doesn't sit right with me. And that is even if we believe the rape allegations are even true. And that's one of the biggest questions we have here. Do we believe Gonzalo raped Patricia? Less than a day after meeting her. While it's her word against, well, nothing. Just her word. It bothers me that she didn't report it to police. Normally, a woman choosing to not report doesn't bother me. I understand it. I told you in part one, stories like Patricia's do resonate with me. They do with many of us listening. Ladies, you out there, I see you. Please don't come at me if you think I'm being judgy on Patricia, because if she's being sincere, then I would stand with her too. But if she's not, then I can judge her. The fact is, I don't know, because she did not allow it to ever be known except by her word alone. And frankly, that doesn't hold a lot of water with us at that point. There are some of us that do believe her, and I respect that. But I still think that those of you who do still have to consider that what took place after the fact, that Patricia led Gonzalo's killers to him, the fact that she alleges sexual assault doesn't give her the right to sentence him to any sort of punishment whether she thought it was going to be intimidation or a beatdown or even being murdered, she didn't have the right to set any of that in motion. She should have filed a police report. If she was too ashamed or afraid, there were so many other people, places, and resources other than Gianni Van. She could have reached out for help, even anonymously. There were just so many times she could have done that one thing differently or she could have just done nothing at all. So that's where I'm going to land on my answer to that. Was she sexually abused by her dad? I don't know. Was she raped by Gonzalo? I don't know. Was she abused, bullied, and intimidated into helping to attack, kidnap, and murder Gonzalo? I don't know. Was she forced into marrying Gianni? That, I don't believe that she was. If it was a marriage to protect Gianni, 
I believe it would have been a marriage to equally protect herself. And she was content to keep it that way until a better marriage, one that was more advantageous and convenient for her in Jorge Mancias, presented itself. Everything Patricia Esparza did, she did with a specific agenda in mind. She is clearly not stupid, and for me, it makes playing the naive card precarious at best. There is such a thing as situational stupidity, I guess. But once those people, Gianni, Cody, and Shannon, were actually willing to snatch Gonzalo from his vehicle, take him to the transmission shop where they tied him up and began torturing him, that should have smacked the naivete right out of her and the reality right back in. I mean, seriously, things just got real when that happened. There was no pretending that you just hear about these things on TV. You don't think you're going to experience these things in your life. Honey, this is your life. This is happening. This is all you. You made this happen and you have to own this. She absolutely refused to take any responsibility for her actions from the very start of this to the bitter end. And the end was a pill more bitter than anything she'd ever be made to taste. Patricia acknowledged in the Dateline episode that the plot was orchestrated, a fact she claimed on the show was a complete shock to learn. I don't know how that is possible when they needed crucial information from her in order to develop that well-orchestrated plot. And that included pertinent information such as, oh, I don't know, like the guy's name that they were looking for, who he actually was, what he looked like, where he could be found, when he could be found, what kind of car he drove. There are three million people in Orange County and more than a million of them are Hispanic. They tracked down Gonzalo three short days after Patricia confided in Gianni about the alleged sexual assault. If not for her, they could not have found him. If not for her, Gonzalo would be alive, and he'd be afforded the opportunity to answer to the charge that he'd raped Patricia. But he wasn't given the chance. He was accused, illegally detained, tortured, condemned, and executed. And it really bothers me that that was done to him without due process. And he just has to lay there dead, convicted of a crime, while Patricia is free to affirm his guilt, also without the due process as she sees fit. If he were alive, if he had the means and those accusations were causing him or his reputation to be harmed, he may have some legal recourse. But she would definitely have to file the police report, but she didn't. The law was taken into her own hands and into the hands of the man she confided in for whatever reasons she told him, but she did. I don't know why, but she did. Patricia never revealed why she confided in Gianni other than she was looking for some comfort, someone to affirm for her that she wasn't dirty and that the assault wasn't her fault. And she happened to confide in the one person in the world who made her feel exactly that. A guy she had dated of all of seven months, she says. It still bugs me why she chose him. I can't help but think that she had another reason, that she had an agenda when she picked him, like she wanted a certain kind of attention from him. I don't know if she anticipated the reaction that she got, 
I mean, you can't dismiss the fact that he turned around and led the charge to Gonzalo's brutal killing. It's crazy that he even did that. But, you know, he brought along friends with him. Maybe this was some sort of weird show of strength or power or proving to his friends his willingness to have their backs if something ever happens. You know, like if anybody ever hurts somebody I care about, this is what I'll do and hack, hack, hack with a meat cleaver. It's really an extreme case of making an example out of somebody. But He had this audience of his friends and maybe he was showboating a little bit. He got this audience looking on and maybe he felt the need to make a big production out of it just to make sure he shocked everybody. I don't know. And we don't even know who administered the majority of the injuries to Gonzalo or if these three men took turns or something. But if they had it in their minds that this man raped Patricia they probably weren't worried about holding back. Her story was enough for them to not care. Obviously. The prosecution had what Patricia said was her truthful testimony in the case, that she identified Gonzalo to this group of people, but they needed to assess what her culpability was beyond that. In the Dateline episode, it said, her role in the case and the killing was far from clear. Was she the victim, a witness, or something more sinister? She had certainly allowed Gonzalo Ramirez's family to sit for 20 years and wonder what had happened to their brother, what had happened to their father. When one of the detectives on the case was asked on the show, do you think Patricia Esparza is just as responsible as the others? He said, well, when you say just as responsible, if you're asking if somebody aids and abets in a crime and is a willing participant in a crime, Are they just as responsible in the eyes of the law? Are they guilty of that crime? The answer is yes. Unequivocally, yes. Are they morally as responsible? Maybe not. Patricia was out on bail. She was given a deal to think about before her next court date, which would be about 11 months later in November of 2013. In exchange for her honest testimony against Gianni, her ex-husband, along with his other co-defendants, and take a guilty plea to voluntary manslaughter, which would be having her serve three years in prison, that was the deal. We know she would probably serve less time than that, in addition to time served, as well as some good behavior. She'd be out in no time. In the meantime, Patricia was going to be able to make it home by Christmas of 2012, which she gushed over and over about her family, her daughter on Dateline, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure it felt good to have that privilege considering she was under indictment for murder. But Patricia still wasn't realizing just how lucky she was even in the face of that. And you will come to see that Patricia still thought that she could throw around all her clout and all of her degrees and all of her props like, here, here's my PhD and this is my doctor husband and here, oh, here's my kid and that's my professor job and this is my reputation over here and this is my good name and my good standing hoping all this stuff was just going to stick to the wall and continue to cover up all her lies. So Patricia flew back to the United States for her November 2013 court hearing with all of her props, I mean her family in tow, her ever-devoted husband and her daughter Ariana by her side. Patricia actually showed up at the courthouse the day before. The prosecutor was hoping that 
they would just accept the deal that they had extended to her so that they could move forward with the murder cases against Gianni and company, which were all hanging in limbo waiting on Patricia's decision because she's dragging it out as long as she can. And it was a very important decision for her, life-changing really. If Patricia were to accept the deal, it meant that she would have to plead guilty to a felony and this could have a major impact on her ability to continue her work as a licensed doctor. She might never be able to work again. However, she had such a strong base of support due to the fact that she was claiming to have been victimized yet again by the Orange County authorities who were charging her with the death of her own rapist. It's not a great look for Orange County, but they really didn't care. They were just interested in following the law and getting these murderers off the streets, something they'd been trying to do for almost two decades. Well, if they thought Patricia had flown in from France to wrap this up all easy peasy for them with a nice bow and accept their deal once and for all, then they could finally prosecute Gonzalo's killers. They had another thing coming. If there's one thing we've learned to not do is never underestimate Patricia Esparza's penchant for choosing the path that's most advantageous for herself. And that simply wasn't going to be pleading guilty to anything and it wasn't going to be spending three years in jail. She wanted zero jail time and no criminal conviction. She's the victim here, she says, and she's about to tell all of Southern California about it before she would tell it to the judge the following day. She gathered up her kid and her husband. She corralled the media up on the lawn in front of the courthouse. Everybody in place, looking nice, looking good, and action. She held her own little press conference before the hearing, the day before. Some of it you can see on YouTube. You can see some of it on the Dateline episode, and you can hear some of it on the Dateline podcast. But first, her husband, her biggest cheerleader, spoke with their daughter standing next to them. He said, good morning. Thank you for your patience. This is my wife, Dr. Norma Patricia Esparza. Dr. Esparza has been charged with murder in the first degree with special circumstances, which carries the possibility of life in prison without the possibility of parole for a murder she did not commit. She is being charged for the murder of the man who raped her 18 years ago. And he continued, this is not America. This is not justice. This is abuse of power. This is the prosecution of an innocent woman who has never harmed anyone. And of the district attorney, Patricia stood up there and said, it is unfortunate that he is willing to destroy a family, that he is willing to strip me away from my daughter, knowing that I am innocent. It is unfortunate. And for that reason, we are coming forward and talking to you about it. Whatever the charges that they are asking me to plead guilty for, it is essentially something I cannot accept because it would essentially be a lie. She didn't say during the press conference what the deal was, but we do know that it was to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. And we do know that the next day at her hearing, she would officially turn the offer down. Patricia was making the claim there for the press that the district attorney secured all the information that they needed from her to make their case against the killers, that she's been cooperative. Yeah, I wonder what exactly she means by quote-unquote cooperative also. And that now that they have their indictments against the others involved in the murder, that they are pressuring her to plead guilty to a lesser charge. 
So Patricia said, now that they have all the information to move with their case and build their case, now they've decided to pressure and ask me to accept a guilty plea, and that's going to be determined tomorrow. She let it be known that she was not aware the night of a murder that the murder took place. She could not be held accountable for a crime that she didn't know happened. I've argued my point that I felt like based on what she said ultimately happened, it didn't make a whole lot of sense that she didn't know. She's claimed a lot of ignorance and naivete throughout the story. It's just another one of those Patricia things that you have to decide for yourself. Personally, I think she knew. Now, Patricia, in deciding to play hardball with the DA here with this press conference, was kind of a big mistake, and she didn't realize that she was making it at the time. She thought that she was holding all the cards, but what she didn't realize was that the prosecutor had some cards of his own, namely that he might not necessarily need Patricia Esparza's testimony to get convictions against Gianni and Shannon because they were willing to deal out Diane Tran, the widow of Cody Tran and the co-owner of that transmission shop. They had Gonzalo's DNA identified with the updated testing. By the letter of the law, technically speaking, as the detective on the case had said earlier on Dateline, is Patricia legally responsible for aiding and abetting a murder? Yes, she is. She was staring down the very real possibility of being convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole, and that's a whole lot worse than a three-year deal. But she was looking at it from the other perspective, that a three-year deal was a whole lot worse than zero time in jail. She just could not bring herself to, for once in her life, take responsibility. Big mistake. Huge mistake. She was going to come to regret this mightily. The minute she turned it down, the judge revoked her bail and she got tossed back into the county. Jorge continued to garner the sympathy and support for Patricia in the media and online as a central figure in a case of a woman being persecuted by an overzealous prosecutor, unjustly looking to convict an innocent woman of the murder of her own rapist. How do I tell this to our daughter? How do I tell her what is happening to mommy? I am committed to making sure mommy is back as soon as possible. So he started a free Patricia Esparza campaign online with petitions urging the prosecutor to drop the charges against her. Spoiler alert, it's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, it's going to get worse. They did not appreciate the manner in which Patricia conducted herself, not in the 90s, not in the 2000s, and now not in the 2010s. I appreciate Jorge's effort, though. He's a scholar. He's obviously a smart man in many ways. Remember what I call it earlier, situational stupidity? Yeah, we might have a case of that going on here. Poor guy, I feel bad for him. He's trying to come at this in the way a professor of neurology would. He told Dateline, I believed Patricia's story immediately. There was no doubt in my mind. I knew her heart. I knew her soul. And I had no doubt that Patricia was innocent of any wrongdoing. I wanted to know the facts. I wanted to understand how it was that she was entangled in a situation like that. Yeah, he used the entanglement word years before Will and Jada Pinkett Smith did it. They stole it from Jorge. 
Well, I'm sorry to say, Jorge, it doesn't take a PhD in neuroscience to understand that your wife became entangled in this because she set up Gonzalo to get killed when she told her maybe boyfriend, maybe ex-boyfriend, then husband, then ex-husband, instead of telling the police that Gonzalo allegedly raped her and then helped the killers evade prosecution for 20 years. And I would like to add that you were perfectly okay with marrying Miss Entanglement, secrets and all, and agreeing to her conditions to not ask any questions. Because your love was unconditional, but hers wasn't. It came with those conditions. It had been unfair to Jorge from the very beginning, and I'm certain he was just another person Patricia was using to protect herself. And he did exactly what she needed him to do and what I believe she married him for. She was scared, always scared, always running, and Jorge was just the next ride out of Dodge when she was ready to take her career to the next level. But in order to get on that ride, she needed to get off her decade-long marriage to Gianni. And as I mentioned in part two, because Patricia described it as a negotiation, I believe they paid him off. She used the word negotiate. Maybe having already built up more savings and assets and didn't want to lose all of it through a divorce. Either way, there was no fear involved in having to deal with entering into this new phase of no longer being forced into silence by marriage. As a matter of fact, if there was any time she could have or would have been free to come forward, would have been then. But she still didn't have the integrity to do so because... There were things that she always did and assumed. She always did what was best for her, and she always did what was most convenient for her, and she always assumed she was more intelligent than the police. She always assumed that her life was more valuable than Gonzalo's, and she was always going to assume that her family and her daughter were going to mean more to this world than Gonzalo's family and his two daughters. Victim or not, I can't say for certain or to what extent because she's lied so much, but the one thing I do believe Patricia to be based on her behavior and her dismissiveness is a narcissist. Just a few days after she was taken back into custody, after she gave that press conference and subsequently turned down the district attorney's plea offer, Patricia did speak to Dateline reporter Andrea Cannon Canning again from jail it's c-a-n-n-i-n-g and part of what she said kind of echoes a little bit of what i said at various points throughout the series patricia was asked do you ask yourself how did i get here and patricia answered absolutely absolutely i rewind so many events in my life i rewind so many things in my mind especially being here having so much time to think about how things progressed I just asked myself so many questions. Over the course of the year after she was arrested at Logan Airport, she cooperated. She answered all of the questions that were asked of her. She testified before the grand jury. She said, I had no idea. I had no idea I was going to revisit that night again and again and again during these last 12 months. It's been so difficult because I feel re-traumatized every time I talk about it in an unsafe setting. I feel that I'm taken back to those moments and I get flashbacks and I start to feel panic attacks and I have to really contain myself and bring myself back. 
In the end, the information she did provide resulted in murder charges being brought against Gianni Van, Diane Tran, and Shannon Grease. As for Patricia, the prosecutor needed to decide what to do with her. Legally, she was responsible for the murder because if not for her setting the whole thing in motion, it never would have happened in the first place. That's first-degree murder case closed. But that's not how Patricia saw it. She said she was forced into disclosing Gonzalo's identity by Gianni Van. She did not do that willingly, she says. She told Andrea, I would go home to my mother's on the weekends. And that's when he took the opportunity to drag me through that whole night and the chain of events that took place that night. Patricia said that exactly three weeks after she met Gonzalo at the El Cortez, Gianni unexpectedly showed up at her mother's house looking for her. He said, let's talk. Let's, yes, continue to see where we can go. I got in his car, and once I was in his car, he took manners into his own hands. Patricia was asked if he brought the other men into the picture at this point, Cody and Shannon. Yes, he did. And does he tell you of his intentions? And Patricia claimed that he did not. As a matter of fact, her exact answer to the question was never, never. Twice. She says it twice. Patricia says a lot of things twice. It's an earmark of lying. Not necessarily proof of lying, but an earmark of it. It's a time-buying tactic. She officially made the claim that she never knew that it was Gianni's intentions to murder Gonzalo on the night of Saturday, April 15, 1995. She claimed that she was still very deeply traumatized from having been raped three weeks earlier on March 26 by Gonzalo. She said she was very depressed and weeping. She said she was saddened and crying every night by what had gone down between herself and Gonzalo. Every single night she was in distress, she said, and Johnny took advantage of her weakened state of emotion. Andrea Canning asked Patricia if Johnny took her to the bar where she met Gonzalo, and Patricia answered, I don't want to revisit details that my lawyer has asked me not to revisit in the interview. But they were able to talk about what Patricia told investigators about the night Gonzalo was murdered when she took her killers to him. They drove her to the El Cortez, she said. All of them went inside, and they insisted that she tell them who Gonzalo was, and when he did walk by them, she did exactly that. They all left the club. She was looking on from another vehicle and watched as the van that Gianni was driving drove into the back of Gonzalo's truck, causing him to pull over and get out of his vehicle to check the damage. She looked on as they all got out of their van and forced Gonzalo into it and drove off to the transmission shop owned by Diane and Cody Tran. Inside that transmission shop was a tiny staircase that led to a little loft area. It was up in this loft area where Patricia said Gonzalo was taken and tortured. He was actually hung from the rafters and tortured. But she said she did not go into the transmission shop at first. She said she was driven to a bar nearby by Shannon Grease's girlfriend, who has never been named in this whole thing, while Gonzalo was taken up into that loft. Now, for me, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, except that it is a detail that is only self-serving for Patricia, as always is the case. 
Everything Patricia says, all the details that she is willing to give or not give has a purpose that suits her best and is to shine the best light possible on her. And this seemingly minute detail might easily fly under the radar, but I'm not going to let it. Think about it for a moment. What reason does anybody have for Patricia being brought to a nearby bar and not allowed to witness one of the most striking aspects of this case? She said she was filled with fear, bullied, intimidated relentlessly by everyone in the story. An element of that would involve the kidnapping, torture, and ultimate killing of Gonzalo, correct? Her alleged attacker, right? She started this. Why would they remove her from witnessing it? Why would they not bring her to the transmission shop? You notice that Patricia doesn't specifically name who it was that she went to the transmission shop with. And I think that she purposely left that detail out because she's not going to have the opportunity to corroborate the story with anyone else. But I find out later that it was Shannon's girlfriend, I believe. And Shannon Grease is the one who allegedly held a gun to her as well. And she needed to remove herself from this narrative as much as possible because she was going to try to erase as much of her own complicity in the murder as she could as she is attempting to prove that she had no knowledge of Gonzalo's death until a month later when she was forced into remaining silent by way of marrying Gianni. That was her story, that she didn't know that there was a murder to be reported to police. And I don't believe her. And why don't I believe her? There's a couple of reasons that are going to come up later, but for starters, I don't believe she was brought to a bar for this specific segment of the attack on Gonzalo. The point of kidnapping and torturing him was the only reason for it was to seek retribution for raping Patricia. Wouldn't they want Gonzalo to know that? And if they were really trying to strike fear into the heart, mind, body, and soul of Patricia, why not make her sit there and watch them systematically torture the guy she pointed to as her attacker? It simply doesn't make sense. And that's one of the reasons why I believe Patricia tweaked this part of the story to remove herself from the scene in order to be able to make the claim she was unaware of the murder having taken place. That is a key element to her culpability, what she knew or didn't know. Just ask yourselves, if these people who were out there with the intention of kidnapping and causing some sort of harm to Gonzalo to punish him for raping Patricia, and he died, what reasons would they have to keep that a secret from her? If anything, they would want her to know so she would have a keen understanding that if they were going to go down for murder, she'd be going down with them. So in reality, they all needed to keep their mouths shut. But Patricia couldn't even do that, right? She's the one who sent police straight to Gianni Van. She dropped his name like a hot potato as quick as she could to deflect attention away from herself. Never in a million years did she think that they would ever link her to Gonzalo. Little did she know that Gonzalo pointed police directly to her when he jotted her phone numbers down on his phone bill at his house next to the name Patty. Good old Dr. Patty, you got a lot of problems, Esparza. Anyway, Patricia told Andrea on Dateline that 
She waited at a bar near the transmission shop while Gonzalo was being beaten and tortured in the loft. Andrea asked if she actually saw him getting beaten, and she said, No, no, I didn't. They made me witness the aftermath of the beating. So he was still alive when they brought you to see him? Patricia answered, Yeah. Andrea asked, And how, what kind of shape was he in at that point? And Patricia had some hesitation, a bit of a hard time getting the words out, but she said, Not in good shape. Andrea asked if he knew it was her. Did Gonzalo remember her? And Patricia said that she didn't know if he did or didn't. She just, at that point, Patricia told Andrea that they were doing this to punish her. That these people were mad at him, but they were also punishing her. And Andrea asked, what were they punishing you for? And Patricia replied, for having allowed it to happen, for how, for somehow not stopping it. Were you able to say something to Gonzalo before he died? And Patricia said, no, no, I was, I was, just I was in fear. I couldn't, I couldn't, possibly, yeah, I wasn't able to. Patricia said that that was the last time she saw Gonzalo. She said his hands were tied with chains in the loft of the transmission shop, but she says she didn't find out and that he had been murdered until later. She said it wasn't until she was forced into marrying Gianni. Of the night that Gonzalo died, she said on Dateline, what I can tell you is I was dragged, pressured, bullied, intimidated into that night when they actually took Gonzalo Ramirez, kidnapped him, beat him up, and ultimately killed him. I never saw him dead, but I was terrorized by the violence that I witnessed. For me, these people were so foreign to me. They were just, I don't know who they were. I just knew they were dangerous and that they were violent and that scared the living daylights out of me. I feared for my own life. And again, dreamers, this is where I believe she believed Gonzalo was dead because she said she feared for her life. She didn't say she feared that she'd be harmed. The violence she witnessed was so brutal it caused her to fear for her life. It didn't take much to put two and two together that they probably weren't going to let Gonzalo live to tell his side of the story. Andrea asked Patricia, did you tell Gianni you wanted to seek revenge on Gonzalo? And Patricia said, never, never. Did you convince him to go there that night? Never. To kill Gonzalo? Never. In addition to Gonzalo being a victim that night, she says she was a victim of Gianni Van that night too, stating, he destroyed the rest of my life. You know, the rape was difficult, but dragging me through that night, it haunts me. Andrea asked, do you wish that you had gone to police? And my God, dreamers, I have to be honest with you here. What Patricia says is kind of exactly what sums up everything that I've been trying to say about how she's been attempting to make us try to feel about her all along. And I'm sorry, I'm just not picking up what she's putting down. Either she's not as bright as she comes off, or they're just giving out PhDs like you're a guest on Oprah. Like, you get a PhD and you get a PhD. Screw it, everybody gets a PhD. University of the Internet. I host a podcast. You get a PhD too. Great. Perfect. Dr. Roseanne. I diagnosed Patricia Esparza with full of shititis. I'm going to go with Patricia isn't quite as bright as she would like everyone to think that she is. 
because she certainly resorts to a great deal of manipulation. Just listen to her answer to Andrea's question. Do you wish that you had just gone to police? And she says, get this and try not to laugh out loud. I wish that at some point this whole cycle had been stopped either by an adult or by myself. But when you're traumatized, when you are raped, when you are terrorized, when you see what you saw, when you see these people are a mob, violent, I don't see how I could have possibly stopped it if it wasn't somebody coming forth and helping me. Whoa, wait. Did you hear what I just heard? Did Patricia just say that she wished at some point this whole cycle had been stopped by an adult? An adult. She actually did just say that to Andrea Canning on Dateline on national television. At this time in the, that this interview was taking place, this woman was almost 40 years old. At the time Gonzalo was killed, she was 20. At no point during any of this case involving the murder of Gonzalo Ramirez was Patricia Esparza a child by legal standards. She may have acted very immaturely. She may have made very poor decisions. She may have had poor judgment. She herself may have come in a little tiny snack-sized package, all short and petite. She was very much legally an adult. And by the time she was pushing 40, she had a monstrous size education, career, and resume that far eclipsed her diminutive stature. Patricia was a giant in her professional world. She worked very, very hard over those 20 years that Gonzalo never got the chance to see. The nerve of her to sit there and tell Andrea that she needed an adult to come forward and hold her hand, I found it so nauseating. Oh my God. I think in the very next moment, she caught herself when she heard herself say that. She realized how stupid that sounded and she followed it up immediately by saying, or by myself. The sentence again, because it's worth hearing again, I wish at some point this whole cycle had been stopped either by an adult or by myself. <sighs> she had to know how dumb, dumb, dumb that sounded. Police are not mind readers. They're not clairvoyants. They found the word Patty written down on Gonzalo's phone bill and it meant nothing to them. All the knowledge of this case was inside of her. The only way this could have been stopped was with her. She was the adult that could have stopped this cycle that she called it. There was no other adult that could have done anything for her. She needed to stand up and speak up, if not for Gonzalo, then for her damn self. I'd have so much more respect for her and her story if she had stood up for herself in this. I can't say it enough. So many points in time, so many days and weeks and months and years, she could have put a stop to this. God, an adult. I just can't. I can't with this woman. Patricia continued to maintain that she was forced into doing everything the night that everything happened, that she had no choice. She did not want to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter for taking Gonzalo's killers to him because she said she was forced. 
She did not want the conviction. She did not want to go to jail for three years. She did not want to be separated from her daughter. All very legitimate things to want. And you know what? I bet Gonzalo would have liked to have been given those options too. But hey, what do I know, right? Patricia promised that she would provide the testimony to secure the cases against Gianni Van and company, but she told the prosecutor that she would do it on her terms and her terms only. She would not be pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter, and she would not be serving any time. And Patricia really thought she had the prosecutor on the ropes. But it is hard to intimidate a prosecutor into backing down, especially when they don't like a criminal defendant. And I don't think they like Patricia all that much. She caused them a lot of grief over the years. They felt like her complicity in the crime deserved some punishment. The fact that she lived a good life in the 18 years in between the killing and her eventual arrest in Boston, they didn't really seem to be a mitigating factor. It seemed to highlight the unfairness of it all for Gonzalo's girls to never be raised by their dad. Patricia didn't see the 18 years being too little too late for justice for Gonzalo, but she said she needed to seek justice for herself too. She does make sure to remind us at every turn that this is also about her. And I will say that there is something about that which should be acknowledged, that Patricia alleges to have survived several brutal and violent crimes committed against her, sexual abuse as a child and a sexual assault. And whatever it was she said Gianni did to her the night Gonzalo was killed, that would entail a lot of mental, emotional, and psychological abuse. Patricia never claimed any physical abuse at any point in her history. Anyway, I find it so interesting that she suddenly wants to seek justice for herself, as she said in her interview with Dateline. Justice in what way? For the rape? I think she got that. I mean, she's the one that set up her alleged rapist murder in the first place, right? Justice for what she said Gianni did to her? Well, I'm sorry, but she chose him. She dated him. She made him her boyfriend. She picked him to confide in. She married him and stayed married to him for almost a decade. She quietly negotiated a divorce from him so she could skedaddle off to Europe. But the funny thing was anytime she could throw him under the bus, no matter how quote-unquote terrified she was of him, she had not a problem doing it. In fact, I don't think Patricia spent much of her 20s terrified of anything. She achieved so much. It just doesn't match up with a person who is terrified. This is a person who is strong and confident and driven and motivated and really fearless to have that kind of drive and ambition. To not only be a woman, but also a woman of color who is from an impoverished country and an immigrant from Mexico into America who was the epitome of excellence when it came to achievement and success. Yet she took her talents to Switzerland, kind of like when LeBron left Cleveland and took his talents to Miami because he won championships. Yeah, that's a sports reference because I know stuff. Patricia left America to go live in France and work in Switzerland because she wanted to not be charged with murder. I mean, LeBron could have stayed in Cleveland and maybe never won any championships, but stayed loyal to his hometown. Patricia could have stayed in California and given back to her own community, but maybe could have caught a murder charge. They both did what was best for them, right? Right. 
Patricia pulled a LeBron. Anyway, Patricia told Dateline that the only justice that she can obtain is to not be wrongfully convicted and taken away from her daughter's life. And Andrea said it. It's quite a risk that she was taking, rolling the dice against the prosecutor, refusing the plea deal, serving what would be less than three years, when if she decided to take her case before a jury, she could be convicted. And I think I made a case here in three parts against Patricia that doesn't paint a very good picture of her. I don't think she comes across very likable at all. And I wonder if she's so confident in herself, like when she gave that press conference the day before she turned down the plea and her bail was revoked, that she would take the stand and try to weather the storm of a prosecutor who had 20 years of material to work with against her. Andrea asked her why take that chance, and Patricia said, I never wanted Gonzalo Ramirez to be harmed. I had to look deep within myself. I had to reflect on who I was, think about my conscience and what I could live with, and I can't live with a guilty plea. I could face life in prison. I will be stripped of my daughter's life for the rest of her growing years, and that's a risk. But I'm trusting that the district attorney will know that we're both seeking the same goal, that we both want justice for the man who raped me, but justice for myself. We are both unfortunate victims in a horrible series of events. But the prosecutor wasn't seeing it that way. And if Patricia thought her tactics, her pleas for sympathy and understanding, using the words ripped from my daughter's life, stripped from her growing years, tearing a family apart, were going to tug at the prosecutor's heartstrings, she had another thing coming. This is part of what they do for a living. People commit crimes, atrocious crimes, every single day. Some, though, are hardly as atrocious as what happened to Gonzalo. Rapist or not, Patricia had every resource to handle that the right way, and she chose the path that she did, and she needs to be held accountable, and that is how the prosecutor sees it. It's just not fair to Gonzalo's family either. His daughters were stripped of their dad. He was ripped from their lives. Their family was torn apart by her actions. So it's a sad, bitter irony that she's calling foul using the same exact things that happened to his girls all those years earlier. Those could have been Gonzalo's exact last thoughts as his soul left his body. Don't strip my girls of their dad. Don't rip me from their lives. Don't tear my family apart. Now. Patricia's the one left begging for the same things. So Patricia Esparza isn't the only woman facing murder charges related to Gonzalo's violent death. I've mentioned her a couple times. She is Diane Tran. She owned the transmission shop along with her husband, Cody. She became implicated in the crime as a result of Patricia's statement to police and was taken into custody shortly afterwards. Dreamers, the statement from Patricia is important to me, and I'll tell you why in a moment, but it's the one where she implicated Diane. Patricia said she was standing outside the door. I don't know if the door was opened or closed, but Patricia was standing in such a way that she was not peering through the door, but she was listening to what was going on inside the room. She heard a man's voice say, should we kill him? Patricia said, I heard sort of a resounding yes from everybody, 
But the one who, who, who struck me in saying yes was Diane, only because I didn't expect it. I didn't expect her. And with that statement, Patricia implicated Diane, and all of a sudden, Diane is plucked from her life and slapped with murder charges 18 years after the fact, something she probably never saw coming. What is important to me about this statement from Patricia is that she acknowledges to police in a taped interview that the killers took a straw vote to see who was on board to kill Gonzalo and everybody said yes. Patricia said it was a resounding yes. So right there, she knew that everyone was on board with killing him. She had knowledge that a murder was going to take place. Nobody wanted Gonzalo to live to tell what happened. Why in the world these people who did not know Gonzalo, and as far as I can tell, they really didn't know Patricia either, only Gianni, why they were so hyped about killing this guy is just weird. Why they were all cool with hacking him up with a meat cleaver? I don't get it. But anyway, Diane's story was similar to Patricia's in that she was there that night because her husband Cody compelled her to be there. Diane's attorney said that all of this was very shocking. It all came out of nowhere, that she's under a tremendous amount of pressure, suddenly facing first-degree murder charges at this point in her life. He said her marriage to Cody was riddled with violence, and the night of the killing, he demanded she be there. She did not want to be there, according to her attorney, and had nothing to do with the killing. So when Patricia turned down the prosecutor's deal, they went knocking on Diane's cell door. They absolutely had somebody else to work with, and Diane may not have had a PhD, but she wasn't stupid either. She took the deal. She agreed to testify against everybody, including Patricia, in exchange for a guilty plea to the reduced charge of voluntary manslaughter, and she would serve four years in prison. And what she had to say about Patricia... Oh, it was so bad. When Patricia turned down the prosecutor's deal, she thought she had him in check, maybe even in checkmate. She thought she could use the media against Orange County authorities to pressure them into backing down and backing off of her. She thought she could appeal to their sense of empathy and family because she mistakenly thought that they needed her testimony in order to secure convictions against all the defendants in the case. That is how narcissistic Patricia Esparza was, and the prosecutor needed to knock her down a few by putting her in check, maybe even a checkmate of their own. Diane's testimony against Patricia was damning. She said that Patricia was not only there that night that Gonzalo died, she was there willingly. She took part in the planning of everything the night that it all happened, and remember, her husband Cody was good friends with Gianni. She was around a lot when Gianni was talking about wanting to track down Gonzalo and retaliate against him. And the talk of doing so started as soon as he found out from Patricia what had happened. She was present when she heard Gianni having conversations about killing Gonzalo. And Patricia was present in the room, engaged in the conversation with him. She heard Gianni speaking about it directly to Patricia. Diane knew that Patricia was aware that they had developed a plan to murder Gonzalo, which is something Patricia was adamant she knew nothing about. Remember, she told Andrea Canning, never, never. 
The investigator for the prosecution's office, Dean Fulcher, looked into Patricia and came to believe from what evidence he was able to uncover about her was that not only was she aware that Gianni was planning the murder of Gonzalo, that it was possible that Patricia may have been the one to orchestrate the whole thing. He told Dateline, When you start peeling back the layers, you find that there was an individual who I think was a very manipulative person, who was kind of pulling the strings all the time, claiming to be the victim while she's using other people to exact revenge on the individual she feels raped her. So you kind of see the investigator there who also wouldn't commit to believing her story that she was raped by Gonzalo by saying that he was the individual that she feels raped her. Ouch. That means that something happened between the two of them and whatever that was, Patricia decided to call it rape. Dateline brought up the fact that Patricia had amassed a small army of supporters calling for the district attorney to stop the re-victimization yet again of another sexual assault victim. They saw Patricia as a real hero among survivors who was able to overcome so much trauma and achieve success in her life, only to have this prosecutor work to take it all away from her. The legal system victimizing her all over again. But the prosecutor does not think her supporters fully understand the complexity of the case at hand. All they seem to understand was that Patricia was the victim of a rape, therefore she can't be a murder defendant, that too much time has gone by since the murder has happened, she wasn't the one who did the actual killing, but the prosecutor refused to let it go. As a matter of fact, when Patricia turned down the deal in November of 2013, the prosecutor sunk his teeth in even deeper and really locked his jaw down on Patricia even worse than ever. He doubled down. Literally, there was no way she was getting zero time in jail after that. Patricia thought she had the prosecutor backed into a corner and she played her hand and she lost. But why didn't the prosecutor let it go? Well, it goes back to what I said at the beginning. This murder was too brutal, too memorable in the way that it happened to let it go. The prosecutor told Dateline, they left a man on the side of the road like garbage. Why should the fact that she lived a free life for 20 years be in any way mitigating? To me, it's aggravating. She got her time. She got to live as if she'd never been involved in this incident. Andrea Canning said, Some might describe Patricia as a rape victim, a mother, a PhD, a wife, someone who has done good things for the world. How would you describe her? And he answered, I think all of those things might be accurate. And yet you could still add to the list murderer. The clock was ticking for Patricia. She turned down a deal that would have seen her out of prison in three years time. Her attorney said Patricia never wanted anyone to think that this crime happened because of her. But the prosecutor, Mike Murray, he said this crime happened precisely, exactly and only because of her. She started it. She helped plan it all out. She blocked the investigation by marrying the prime suspect. She lied and lied and lied for two decades to police. Even when she was arrested, she told them she was in town for a conference when the truth was she was in Boston meeting up with the former boyfriend. He told them he was there to pick her up and she was going to Connecticut with him for a week before her conference. Nothing relevant to their murder case, just more of the patty lie machine hard at work. Also, in that time since she was arrested, 
They recovered those pictures I mentioned of her and Gianni taken after the murder, all smiley and happy, not the bullied, intimidated, forced into marriage, scared child she claimed that she was at the time the marriage took place. Information had also come out related to Patricia's visit to the nurse at Pomona College. If you recall, she said she told the nurse that she was date raped and the nurse was dismissive and didn't want to deal with it. While the records that they did find of that day of that visit made no mention that Patricia said she was raped. It said that Patricia was examined by both a nurse and a doctor, which Patricia did not tell investigators. And the doctor's notes from that visit said that Patricia had unprotected sex and asked for a morning after pill. There was no mention of a rape in the doctor's notes. There was no further information since nearly two decades have passed. But hey, I'm surprised that even existed, to be honest. The prosecutor's office take on the rape was inconclusive. He wasn't going to sit there and say it didn't happen. All he knows is that there's no proof on paper that it ever did. Not at the college, not in any official police documents. Calling Patricia a liar in that sense really wasn't going to do him any favors. I know it's not going to do me any favors either. It's up to each of us to reach our own conclusions as to what we think. I've decided to stand with the prosecutor on this one. I just can't say for sure. But when it comes to everything else in the case, it doesn't matter. It doesn't excuse away the other things that Patricia did in this case. If she truly, truly believed in what she was saying about what she could and could not live with, then she was going to make the decision that was going to be what was best for Patricia Esparza every single time. Like I said, the prosecutor dug his heels in with her. Patricia wanted out of jail so bad but she was looking at going on trial for first-degree murder and faced the very real possibility of never getting out of jail ever again. It's all about the jury and taking her chances. Her attorney was cautiously optimistic. You know, he's telling her, I think we can win, but he's not the one that has to live his life behind bars if they don't. Patricia was going to have to figure out what she was going to do before Gianni Van's trial commenced. And the date was set for that, as was Shannon Grease's trial. Gianni was set to go on trial in the spring of 2015, and Patricia was going to have to decide if she was going to testify and if even there was going to be a deal for her to do so. Her attorney said it was a really tough decision, but really, she brought this all on herself. Her time to decide was slipping away, and finally, she reached out to her lawyer and asked him if there was still a deal available. And the prosecutor was like, let me think about it. So he came up with another deal, and she looked it over and was like, okay. She had to suck it up. Prosecutor Mike Murray was finished playing games with Patricia, and like I said a moment ago, he doubled down, literally. Guilty of voluntary manslaughter and serve six years twice as much time as the first deal, just for dragging this out a little bit longer than it needed to be. And by then, they had even more dirt on Patricia by the time the new deal came out. The case against her was even stronger than before. She was so screwed. She took the deal and testified at Gianni's trial. His trial started April 15th, 2015, on the 20th anniversary of Gonzalo's death. He took the stand in his own defense and he pointed the finger at the others in the transmission shop that night, 
but he was convicted after a day of deliberations and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Today, Gianni is 51 years old and being housed at the Aveno State Prison in Aveno, California, and he will remain there for the rest of his natural life. Diane Tran is no longer in jail, and if you search for Diane Tran, all the top results are going to take you to a story out of Houston, Texas from back in 2012 about a 17-year-old honor student named Diane Tran who was taken to jail for 24 hours and fined $100 for missing 18 days of school because she was working two jobs to help her mom who was struggling financially since her parents divorced. So apparently Texas has a law that says a student can only miss 10 days of school and she missed 18, which is clearly excessive. And in Texas, 17 is considered an adult and this was a misdemeanor. So they tossed her in jail for a day. And the judge on the case faced so much backlash that the charges were eventually dismissed. Petitions were signed. Money was raised. So it ended up okay in the end. I just thought that was kind of interesting. I didn't know it was like that, Texas. But anyway, back to our story. Shannon Grease was scheduled for trial too. But his was looming and pleading out started sounding good to him as well. There was a May 2016 article about it in the Los Angeles Times by Christopher Gofford that had a few details I hadn't heard previously in the case, and it read in part, On the verge of a jury trial for his role in a gruesome kidnapping and murder that went unsolved for years, a former car mechanic in Santa Ana pleaded guilty Monday to murder and is expected to receive a lengthy prison term. Shannon Ray Grease, 45, was implicated in the slaying of 24-year-old Gonzalo Ramirez, an insulation installer whose blindfolded body was dumped beside a road in Irvine in April 1995. His body had been hacked dozens of times with a machete-like weapon and was entangled in a distinctive blue cloth. Detectives matched the cloth to a roll missing from the auto shop where Grease worked accurate transmission in Costa Mesa and where forensic experts found traces of the victim's blood. The motive for the murder was revenge. Norma Patricia Esparza, then a 20-year-old Pomona College student who would go on to become a professor of psychology in Switzerland, had told her ex-boyfriend Gianni Van that Ramirez had raped her in her dorm room. Testifying at Van's trial last year, Esparza said that an angry Van took her to a Santa Ana nightclub and made her identify her rapist. Soon afterward, she said Van and his friends, Grease and his transmission shop boss Cody Tran, followed Ramirez from the bar, rammed his truck on a nearby road, and abducted him. Later, Esparza said Grease's girlfriend drove her to the transmission shop where Grease holding a handgun, ordered Esparza to walk up a flight of stairs to see what was in the loft. There, Esparza saw a bloody Ramirez, his arms tied with chains attached to the ceiling, his feet dangling above the floor. He was still alive. Esparza testified. He lifted his head and said, I don't know you, little one. He said it in Spanish. She said she was paralyzed, trying not to notice, and was being carried away by other people's actions. Hours later, Ramirez was found along Sand Canyon Road, terribly mutilated. It was never clear who delivered the wounds. Esparza herself had never been accused of causing any of the wounds. 
Soon after the killing, Esparza entered into a sham marriage with Van, which was meant to undermine the case and prevent her from testifying against Van, which thwarted the investigation and the case against him. She's maintained that she married him out of fear. Esparza was expected to be a witness at Shannon Grease's trial. He pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Today, he is 50 years old and currently housed at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. He will be eligible for parole in 10 more years in January of 2031 when he is 60 years old. Patricia Esparza, with a great deal of regret that she didn't take the plea from before, accepted the plea deal officially in July of 2016. Diane Tran took her plea on the same day. Patricia got the six years. Diane got the four. In the end, Gonzalo's family weren't completely happy that Patricia got off with a relatively light sentence. On the Dateline episode, his brother called her very intelligent, a criminal mind. She knows how to play with the people. But I still think his brother Gonzalo said it best the day he walked out of her dorm room and told her she had a lot of problems. In the end, Patricia said that she went into the line of work that she's in to help people who are experiencing the kinds of trauma she experienced. She said on Dateline, The reason I went into psychology was to try to heal people precisely from the kinds of trauma that I experienced. I think it's enough to be terrorized. It's enough to be abused. It's enough to be traumatized by a rape. And I've tried to seek a meaningful life where I can actually change people's lives. And that's been my objective. I'm going to put this behind me. I need to put this nightmare behind me. So back in November of 2013, just around the time that Patricia turned down the first offer of three years and had her bail revoked, Patricia wrote an article in the Huffington Post entitled Perspective on Rape, Can Women Trust the Justice System? It said, As American universities in California and across the nation grapple with whether their policies towards sexual assault on campuses are adequate and why 60% of rape and sexual assault victims keep silent, my case may shed some light on these questions. I was raped in my college room at the age of 20. I did not report it to the police, and now, 18 years later, I am facing murder charges and the death penalty for the death of my assailant all because I did not turn to the police after I was raped. I turned to the college nurse, but I got no help, and the incident was not officially recorded in college records. I could not turn to my family, feeling that I had disappointed them once before. My father had sexually abused me for seven years, starting at the age of five. When he was exposed, I was made to feel ashamed. That shame stayed with me, quickly turning into a deep sense of guilt and humiliation. During the formative years of my childhood, I had learned to submit in order to survive, and this made me vulnerable for the rest of my life. In college, it happened again. Despite struggling with him, I could not stop a man from taking me against my will by direct force. At four foot nine and weighing 95 pounds and converted that's 1.5 meters tall and 43 kilograms, he found it very easy to overpower me. When it was over, the outside world stopped to exist. I could not hear or think. 
I was alone, distressed, and with no options. I could not turn to my family, and to my misfortune, a man I had dated for a few months came to visit me, attempting to rekindle the relationship. I tried to keep the horrible incident to myself, but the rape opened up an old wound that had not healed, taking me back to the times of helplessness and submission as a child. When this man arrived, he noticed my distress and was sympathetic. He pressed me for hours until I broke down into tears and recounted the details. He became enraged, however. He wanted me back in his life, and I had been damaged, dishonored to him. He bullied and blamed me for it. One night, he had a group of his friends proceed to take matters into their own hands. I was whisked away by one of his friends while the others physically assaulted the man who raped me. I was warned that if I turned against them, a worse fate would await me. I was trapped, outnumbered by three older men, one of whom had a gun, and two women who accompanied them. I was miles away from my home. I had no access to a phone or a car and did not know how to drive then. I was finally taken home. I was told they had released my assailant. Weeks later, I found out that he had been killed, however. The nightmare would not end there. Another one of the men who had threatened me that night and died in a shootout with police wanted to ensure I remained quiet, so I was pressured to marry the man that I dated so that I could not be made to testify against him. In the following 18 years, I tried to rebuild my life. I went back to college and earned a PhD in psychology. I had an opportunity to work on mental health at the World Health Organization in Geneva, and soon after I got a job as a psychology professor. Last year, while traveling to the USA, I was arrested abruptly, disappearing from my daughter's life for two months. I was eager to cooperate with the authorities and remove the black cloud hanging over me. But once again, my trust was violated. The district attorney claimed they were not interested in me, that I was not a target. I cooperated fully and without restraint, as I wanted to help them solve the case. They used my information to crack a case they could not solve for 18 years and were finally able to arrest the main suspects. Yet they continued to charge me with murder despite having clear evidence that I did not participate in the killing. My lifelong struggle to rise above the shame and humiliation continues as I am portrayed as a murderer. I have done everything to help build the district attorney's case because justice should be done. A man's life should never be taken by another human being under any circumstances. I want to raise my four-year-old daughter in a world with justice, where she can feel safe to trust others and to have that trust be cherished and valued, not violated. My situation is a striking example of how inadequate college campus policies placed me at the mercy of others' bullying and intimidations. I needed protection when I sought out the nurse, but I did not receive it and others took advantage of my distress. If we need support, comfort, and protection, why do victims not report rape or sexual abuse to authorities? Non-reporting is pervasive, and it cuts across race, professional status, and economic levels. We recently heard of the prominent, high-powered women who did not come forward when the ex-mayor of San Diego assaulted them. What stops us victims from reporting is more than the shame. Rape and abuse are not only a violation of your body, but a violation of the trust you place on another human being. I trusted my father. For a fleeting moment, I trusted my rapist, letting him into my room. 
Then I trusted the man I dated. Now I have trusted the prosecutors. The Orange County District Attorney's decision on whether to pursue charges against me will send a powerful message to women on where they stand in the eyes of the justice system. The justice system needs to assuage victims' fears that no one will believe them and that they will be further humiliated. Orange County has the opportunity to convey the message of trust to women by dropping the charges against me. Well, you gotta give Patricia an A for effort, I guess. There are, again, so many things wrong with this story that anyone who could form an opinion about this case based solely on what Patricia has to say about this article would be missing a big part of what's going on in the background. How about I reread this article, or at least some parts of it, but insert some little nuggets of truth and reality as we go along here. First of all, Patricia is making her case being an issue of underreporting sexual assault on college campuses. In part one, I mentioned a podcast covering this case and discussing this issue. I never really thought Patricia's case had anything to do with college campus sexual assault underreporting because I had some doubt that the sexual assault ever took place. Secondly, I had doubts as to whether she actually told anyone that she needed to tell or should have told at the college about it. If she told the nurse, and if the nurse would have been able to actually report it herself or if she was bound by privacy laws, if so, Patricia would have needed to go to the campus police herself. She may not have been able to rely on the nurse to pass along information. And lastly, Patricia didn't report the sexual assault to any law enforcement agency, not campus police and not the local law enforcement, not to nobody ever. She never made an official report. And when Orange County investigators looked into it, the records they did find indicated that Patricia not only spoke to a nurse at the college, but she was also seen by a doctor. And the notes written by the doctor said that she was seen for having unprotected sex and wanted a morning after pill. No mention of rape was noted. Patricia wrote in the article, I was raped in my college room at the age of 20. I did not report it to police. 18 years later, I'm now facing murder charges and the death penalty for the death of my assailant, all because I did not turn to the police after I was raped. We know that this is not true. She is facing murder charges because she led the murderers to their victim by bringing them to the place where he liked to hang out on a Saturday night. She pointed him out. She identified him so that they could follow him, stalk him, kidnap him, torture him, and murder him. She caused all of that to happen to him. Rape or no rape in the eyes of the law, she is just as responsible for his death as if she swung that meat cleaver down into his body herself. It wasn't because she didn't report the rape. It was because she set him up to die. Let's not forget that she all but cast herself as a child when she told Andrea Canning on Dateline if an adult had come forward and told her that they could help her. She was well past childhood by this time. She'd been through a prestigious boarding school. She was a couple years into college. She was well on her way to an impressive career. She may have been small in stature, and certainly 
did want to present herself in that way, and it played well for her as a quote-unquote victim, but her achievements were gigantic, and there's just no getting around that fact. So her article in the Huffington Post continued, I turned to the college nurse, but I got no help, and the incident was not officially recorded in college records. I could not turn to my family, feeling that I had disappointed them once before. My father had sexually abused me for seven years, starting at the age of five. When he was exposed, I was made to feel ashamed. That shame stayed with me and quickly turned into a deep sense of guilt and humiliation. During the formative years of my childhood, I learned to submit in order to survive, and this made me vulnerable for the rest of my life. The manner in which Patricia conducted herself with law enforcement, the way she lied to their face for years and years, the way she ducked and dodged prosecution, hindered their case, the manner in which she ascended in her professional life hardly reeks of vulnerability to me. I see a very strong, motivated, driven by a a sense of self-preservation by any means necessary. That's what I see in her. She also made it seem as though she had no support from her mother or her brother and sister when it came to the abuse that she suffered from her father. This was not something she shared in the Dateline episode. She really didn't talk all that much about it, so we really don't know how the family reacted. But we do know that her mom would put her house on the line as collateral to ensure Patricia would come back for the court hearings, and that's a show of a tremendous amount of support and sacrifice on her mother's part, if you ask me. If she's willing to put her home up for collateral to make sure that her daughter would show up for her murder trial, it tells me that she has a lot of love and support. I know it's not the same thing because Patricia accusing her dad of sexual abuse means she's accusing her mother's own husband of these terrible acts, but I don't know. It sounds fishy, but Everything Patricia says sounds fishy to me. So she continued, In college, it happened again. Despite struggling with him, I could not stop a man from taking me against my will by direct force. At four foot nine, weighing 95 pounds, he found it easy to overpower me. When it was over, the outside world stopped to exist. I could not hear or think. I was alone, distressed, and with no options. And here it just sounds like what a psychologist would say when speaking to a client that they're treating. This is her line of work. She's an expert in this. So she went on. I could not turn to my family. And to my misfortune, a man I had dated for a few months came to visit me, attempting to rekindle the relationship. I tried to keep the horrible incident to myself, but the rape opened up an old wound that had not healed, taking me back to themes of helplessness and submission as a child. When this man arrived, he noticed my distress and was sympathetic. He pressed me for hours until I broke down into tears and recounted the details. He became enraged, however. He wanted me back in his life, and I had been damaged, dishonored to him. He bullied and blamed me for it. So for this part of Patricia's story, I think we might have a plausible plot twist here. I wondered a lot about why Gianni reacted the way he did, and maybe some of you out there listening might have some theories of your own, but let's say for a minute that perhaps Patricia wasn't giving Gianni a straight story about what happened with Gonzalo a couple weeks earlier. At the time she confided in Gianni about this, a little more than two and a half weeks had passed. 
It isn't far-fetched of us to think that Patricia was lying to Gianni when she was talking to him because her mouth was moving, right? Who knows what she was saying to him, but there's a 50-50 chance that it wasn't the truth. She was telling him whatever she thought would be the most advantageous thing for her to say in order for her to get what she wanted. So, what was it that she wanted from Gianni? Well, from the post-murder, post-marriage pictures they showed on Dateline, Patricia looks pretty damn happy considering she's sitting next to a murderer who intimidated and bullied and tormented her into witnessing heinous acts of violence and then ultimately into a marriage. Well, because Patricia gets what Patricia wants, a pattern that is repeated over and over and over again in her life, and it was no matter whatever she said was happening around her, she always rose above it or went around it or walked right through it as if it didn't exist and got exactly what she wanted out of life at every single turn. Patricia gets what Patricia wants. So I can't help but have this nagging feeling that there was something about what happened with Gonzalo that caused her to feel slighted by him for some reason. And it's that thing that he said to her that sticks out in my mind. You've got a lot of problems. What in the world prompted him to say that to her? Did she start acting weird in the middle of sex? Did she begin crying or behaving like she was being violated for some reason? Did she say something or did he say something that just caused everything to come to a screeching halt and for him to just get up and walk out? There are two things that statement doesn't sound like it came after. It doesn't sound like it happened after a good time, and it doesn't sound like it happened after a rape. It sounds like something that was said after an awkward time, because they're essentially strangers trying to have sex. At least we think that's what's going on. They just met the night before, so if this is consensual, then it's a hookup unless Patricia said no. And I stand by what I said before. And what she said in this open letter in the Huffington Post, she said that the abuse caused her to develop a tremendous fear and intimidation of men and that she was made to feel shame when the abuse by her father was exposed and that shame stayed with her and it developed into guilt and humiliation. And she learned to submit in order to survive. And this caused her to be vulnerable for the rest of her life. I understand that vulnerability, and this is exactly why I can say that I would never, and I know that almost any woman that I know would never, invite a man that she had only known for 12 hours to come into her home to be alone with her under any circumstances, especially if there are any of us out there who are survivors. We are very protective of ourselves. And I live alone now, and I just wouldn't bring a stranger into my apartment that I just met. It would take a very long time before I get to that point, if I ever did. And I know that I'm not alone in feeling this way, and I know I'm not crazy in feeling this way. So when I hear Patricia talk about how vulnerable she's been her entire life, how fearful of men she has been, how naive she always is, how intimidated she is. It makes absolutely no sense that she would be so willing to just let this guy up into her dorm room with all of her safeguards in place. 
Now, don't come at me. I said it before that we should all be able to have anybody come into our place and not get raped and killed. We totally have the right to have that. And if you're a guy who is capable of being invited into a woman's apartment or house without raping or killing her, then you're ahead of the curve, I guess. No, that just means your mama or and or your daddy or whoever it was that raised you, your grammy, your grampy, your auntie, your uncle, whoever it was, they did it right. But more so for me now that I host this damn show than before I did, we know the kinds of messed up people that are out there that are just going to hurt you if they want to, if they get the chance. All I'm saying is either Patricia let her guard down or she wasn't as fearful as she said she was because she wasn't as damaged and as vulnerable as she made herself out to be. I think it's possible that she allowed Gonzalo into her dorm room so he could get a glass of water, even though he could have gone to any of the 5,000 7-Elevens on every corner in Southern California to get a 69-cent bottle of water, but okay as it would have been just as likely that she allowed him to come into her dorm room for a sexual encounter. If at any point he made a sexual advance and she said no, then he needed to stop. Even if she was completely naked and he was going in and she said stop, he had to stop. According to the college records, it said Patricia had unprotected sex. She went to get a morning after pill. Because Patricia was in pursuit of her education and ain't nobody got time for that, right? I think if she told the doctor she was raped, he would have dotted it down. It's protected by privacy laws and nobody would have been able to see that. That is until those records came under subpoena when she was indicted for first degree murder 18 years later. But yeah, I think the doctor would have been thorough and made a note of it. Doctors do that. You tell them stuff and they write stuff down really fast with the messiest handwriting that only they can read. It's possible that Patricia was raped and just didn't tell the doctor. Maybe she told the nurse. Ultimately, nothing was ever done about it. Yeah, that's possible. But it seems that it would be something that they would have written down in her confidential medical records. They had no reason not to, even if colleges were under-reporting. These are medical records and are protected. The bottom line, Patricia needed to report the rape to law enforcement and to college officials, and she was the adult to do it, the only one who could have done it, and nobody else could have done that for her. And so how does Gianni factor into all of this? And why in the world did he react the way that he did when Patricia told him whatever story she told him that occurred between her and Gonzalo? I have no real good answer for that. It still bugs me. I've said it a couple times now. He must have been motivated strongly for some reason. And it really doesn't sound like it was out of an immense love for Patricia. And it really kind of sounds like he didn't like her all that much, to tell you the truth. I feel like she had to have told him the story in some way that made him that angry. Or either that or they really weren't broken up. Maybe she was doing what lots of young people do at that age. Maybe she was playing games, messing around with Gianni and messing around with Gonzalo. Maybe she thought it'd be kind of cool to see how far Gianni would go to protect her honor. This is where I tend to lean towards believing that the rape may have happened 
and that it genuinely caused Johnny to fly into such a murderous, blind rage. I can't see these people taking this event to this extreme unless something horrific happened to Patricia that Gonzalo really violated her in the worst way. And to tell you the truth, I kind of hope he did. Because if she was like, oh, just kidding, he didn't rape me, that this was some misguided attempt to gain my ex-boyfriend's attention. Sorry, my bad. I mean, I don't like that this happened, but it happened. But if it happened because of a lie Patricia made up, then that's just sad. But the one thing I could not find an answer anywhere in my brain is why Gianni set off to do this to Gonzalo. As a society, as a whole, that we don't like rapists. But geez, this was like overboard. And then when Patricia said Gonzalo told her in Spanish, I don't know you, little one, that just tore me up. Because he said that for either one of two reasons, he was trying to deny having anything to do with why he was there being tortured, or he had really forgotten about Patty as soon as he told her that she had a lot of problems and walked out the door. So the next part of Patricia's letter sounds like she's writing a really cheesy movie script, especially if I want to read it with some drama. One horrible night, he and a group of his friends proceeded to take matters into their own hands. I was whisked away by one of his friends while the others physically assaulted the man who'd raped me. I was warned, if you turn against us, a fate worse than this awaits you. I was trapped, outnumbered, by three older men, one of whom held a gun to me. I was miles away from my home. I had no access to a phone or a car, and I didn't even know how to drive. When I was finally taken home, I was told that they had released my assailant, and I was relieved. Weeks later, I found out he'd been killed. But the nightmare? It would not end there. Another one of the men who threatened me that night had recently died in a shootout with police. And wanting to ensure that I would remain quiet, I was pressured to marry the man that I had dated so that I could not be made to testify against him. In the following 18 years, I desperately tried to rebuild my life. Anyway, I don't really mean to make fun of her. Okay, I'm lying. Yes, I am. But Patricia... She's just overly dramatic. And she went on. In the following 18 years, I tried to rebuild my life. And, I mean, tried? I think she did a pretty darn good job carrying all the baggage that she had along with her. Oh, wait. She had other people carrying her baggage. That's right. The Orange County prosecutors, Gianni Van, Shannon Grease, Cody Tran, Diane Tran, Gonzalo's family, his two daughters. And ultimately, she dropped all of her baggage on her husband, Jorge. And luckily for her, he gladly took on the burden of carrying around all of her BS. 
And she breezed through college and got all of her degrees and got all of these opportunities working at the World Health Organization, teaching psychology. And then she wrote, Last year, and that was in 2012, while traveling to the USA, I was arrested abruptly, disappearing from my daughter's life for two months. I was eager to cooperate with the authorities and remove the black cloud hanging over me. First of all, I want to say that she disappeared from her daughter's life, but she was 100% responsible for that happening. She had a duty to her family, her husband, and her daughter to be forthcoming and truthful, and she chose not to. And Jorge, too, for that matter. This was his fault for marrying a woman who set the condition that she could marry him only if he promised to not ask her questions about her past. And he agreed. So they all agreed that if something weird were to happen, like, oh, say, mom goes to jail for some reason, well, hey, it was don't ask, don't tell, right? And because he agreed, and suddenly Patricia vanished from their lives, it shouldn't be a shock to anybody. Patricia warned Jorge herself years earlier. She had secrets that he could never know about. When she gave birth to her daughter, she did so with that dark cloud hanging over her head, knowing full well that she was bringing a life into this world that she might someday be separated from because she helped kill a guy back in 95. And secondly, as for this quote-unquote eager-to-cooperate nonsense, please, she was never interested in cooperating. Starting from the very day that she was raped, she never reported it to police. She told Gianni about it, and he wanted to kill the guy. She still didn't call police. They killed the guy. She still didn't call police. They tracked her down anyway. Then she told him about Gianni, but then she married him. When investigators found out that she divorced him, they emailed her, and she still refused to cooperate. So they put her name on the watch list, and she eventually flew right into their trap. She cooperated because they caught her, not because she voluntarily and eagerly cooperated or was interested in cooperating. So let's be clear about that. And when authorities told her that they needed her cooperation and it would work in her favor to do so, they never told her that they would promise her complete immunity and freedom. They would never give her that. They can't promise her that. They told her that they would see what they could do. I'm pretty sure that's what they would say. They're not allowed to make those kinds of promises. And they did not feel that she deserved to not be convicted of a crime when she committed so many of them over the years and allowed for murderers to remain free far too long. Violent murderers. These guys that hacked a guy up to death were just walking around the street like, like nothing ever happened. Patricia Esparza was never interested in cooperation. She only cooperated when it became the most convenient and advantageous thing for Patricia to do so for her, when she had no other choice. Then she wrote, But once again, my trust was violated. The district attorney claimed that they were not interested in me, that I was not a target. I cooperated fully and without restraint, as I wanted to help them solve the case. Um, no, she didn't. They used my information to crack a case that they could not solve for 18 years. 
They couldn't solve it because she ran, hid, and married the prime suspect and fled the country, but okay. And finally were able to arrest the main suspects, but they would have convicted them without Patricia once they decided to plead to Diane instead of her. Another strategic move I bet Patricia never saw coming. Yet they continued to charge me with murder despite having clear evidence that I did not participate in the killing. Somebody get this woman a copy of the California Penal Code. There's this thing that you can't do. You can't be involved in a murder. Even if you didn't do the actual murder yourself, if you had something to do with getting the murder planned and getting it moving forward, then yeah, you're equally responsible. So when she tries to remove herself from responsibility by saying that she is being charged with the crime that they know she didn't commit, I'm sorry, sweetie, but you're responsible. In the eyes of the law, you are. And you know prosecutors do take into consideration how much or how little you show integrity and willingness to do the right thing, and she showed none until her hand was forced. Patricia continued, My lifelong struggle to rise above the shame and humiliation continues as I am portrayed as a murderer. As the law is written, you are a murderer. I have done everything to help build the district attorney's case. You did not. Because justice should be done. Sure, but you didn't care if it did or not. A man's life is never to be taken by another human being. Uh, you seemed fine with it until you got busted in Boston. I want to raise my four-year-old daughter in a world with justice. Well, so would have Gonzalo for his two girls. Where she can feel safe. In a world where you caused their father to get hacked to death and nobody was ever brought to justice is just about one of the most unsafe things I've ever heard of. And have that trust be cherished. And you had Gonzalo's worlds be destroyed. This woman has absolutely no ability to look outside herself. She is not even concerned about her daughter. Her daughter's going to be fine. She has a very loyal, upstanding father who is going to hopefully see the light when Patricia serves her six years. If Patricia's daughter is going to need some therapy, it's going to be Patricia's own fault for setting her on that path and nobody else's. She could have put this to bed long before her daughter ever came into this messed up life that Patricia brought about for her family. And the irony is, is that she never speaks of Gonzalo's daughters. And it bothers me. It bothers me how she plays up the motherhood card so hard to make her case, but is incapable of considering what Gonzalo's daughters lost and the nightmarish way in which they lost them. In this world, if we ever thought that it was possible for a man to be hacked to death by a group of strangers that just plucked him off the street in the middle of the night could ever happen, it happened because Patricia Esparza made that thing happen in this world. She's the one that made this world a dangerous, nightmarish place. Not anybody else. She did that. And the fact that she made that happen makes her one of the most dangerous and scariest people in this entire story. Because 
She walked around for almost two decades, knowing that there were people out there capable of this kind of evil, and she was perfectly fine with it, perfectly okay with it. It's very disturbing how much people hold this woman in high regard. I'll go ahead and skip to the end of her Huffington Post contribution because I've honestly had enough. She finished off by saying that the Orange County District Attorney's decision on whether to pursue charges against her will send a powerful message to women on where they stand in the eyes of the justice system. The justice system needs to assuage victims' fears that no one will believe them and that they will be further humiliated. Orange County has the opportunity to convey the message of trust to women by dropping the charges against me. Um, I don't think Orange County is going to use Patricia Esparza as the poster child of what to do when you experience a sexual assault. The entire case against Patricia has never been about the alleged rape. It has been about whether or not she set in motion a series of events that led to Gonzalo Ramirez's murder. And I believe that the answer is yes. And I believe that there is a price that needs to be paid for that. Three years was generous considering a voluntary manslaughter conviction could get you as many as 10. But that wasn't good enough for her. Patricia was so arrogant and unintimidated, so unafraid, so fearless, and so confident in herself. All the traits that she said she never had throughout her entire life. She tried to stand up to the system thinking that she could win and get them to back down until she couldn't. It was a real wake-up call for a woman who is so used to getting what she wants. She is a very powerful, highly educated woman who rose to the top of her profession. She overcame so much. And even if she didn't, she was and still is one of the most accomplished individuals we have ever had as a criminal defendant on this podcast. It takes tenacity and fortitude and a real show of force to achieve what she did in life. She really could have been a role model for young girls in situations like she came from. I don't see her as weak. I see her as very smart and very powerful. Until she ran into authorities in Orange County who just would not let this go. Okay, dreamers, I'm not going to do a part four on this, I promise. But I do want to add a short addendum so I can go ahead and get this recorded and out there. The addendum will be just a full recap of what actually happened in the case with the details from the article that I read on the slate.com from 2014. It has some details in there that I want to share with you. I'm also going to go over some opinions about Patricia that I found on a website called Eyes for Lies. Maybe some I found on Reddit. I don't know how different those might be from the Eyes for Lies website. And I'll finish up with some of your comments about Patricia on social media. Some of you had a lot to say about it. Before I sign out, I want to give a shout out to the TCP Club. And many of you who are in the California Dreaming Facebook group have already joined. But if you're on Facebook and you aren't in our group, you may like to join the TCP Club group. 
It's the True Crime Podcast Club. And each week they pick a podcast to listen to. They choose one episode and then they discuss the show in the comments. His group is picking up a little bit of steam, but you know, everybody who has their own Facebook group likes to see it grow. And you don't always want to invite people without asking them first. I've discovered a couple of new podcasts by joining in the weekly recommendation. And I'm actually going to cover a story very, very soon, possibly in episode 172, that was covered over the course of a season on a podcast that I discovered in that group. The owner of the group is this guy named Chris. He's someplace down under, uh, I guess that would be Australia. He is very nice. He got bombarded with a bunch of dreamers from our Facebook group. I will share his link in the show notes for you. And I want to thank you all for listening to California Dreaming, which is now officially brought to you by me and brought to you by a bunch of patrons and a bunch of dreamers who just really love to fall asleep listening to the worst of the worst. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time.